Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Derek Barris. He's an author and media expert, the senior editor at Eco, and co-host of the Conspirituality podcast. Far-left yoga moms and far-right trolls aren't the most obvious pairing that you would have put together. However, these unlikely ideological allies have more in common than you might think. Much of the thinking within these groups has converged in recent years, and Derek is here to explain how this has happened. Expect to learn how the term conspiracy has been diluted down to mean all manner of things now, the typical characteristics of a cult leader, why conspiracy theories are so seductive to the people tempted by them, how spirituality adds a different flavour to conspiratorial tropes, whether I need to stop saying hello cult members, and much more. The world of conspirituality is one that I kind of had an idea about, right? You've watched yoga documentaries on Netflix about these crazy ashrams and stuff, but I didn't realize just how pervasive it was. The fact that QAnon kind of co-opted itself into the wellness and new age movement. Uh, It's very interesting. The work that Derek does is taking a different perspective on a corner of the internet that I literally wasn't even aware existed. So yes, I hope that you enjoy this one. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Praxis Careers. They are helping ambitious and entrepreneurial young people launch their career without college. Praxis Apprenticeship Program helps you to break out of the classroom and into an awesome career with a fast-growing business without student debt. You get a year-long apprenticeship program that combines a skills boot camp plus a full-time paid job at a growing business, six months of professional development to build hard and soft skills. Then you land a job at a growing business in sales, marketing, or operations. Coaching and mentorship is given along the way to help you get started and thrive in your career long-term. Plus, you get lifetime access to the Praxis Network as a graduate. There's over 500 graduates of the program with a $50,000 average starting salary at graduation. They've been running a college alternative since 2014 and have a network of startups and growing businesses that are eager to hire hardworking young talent with no degree required. Go to discoverpraxis.com slash modernwisdom to download their program guide and schedule a call with a Praxis advisor to learn more about the program and applications are now open for the 2022 cohorts. That's discoverpraxis.com slash Modern Wisdom to get everything for free and to find out more. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Lucy. Some people choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or just unwind after a long day. Lucy is a modern oral nicotine company that makes nicotine gum, lozenges, and pouches for adults who are looking for the best, most responsible way to consume their nicotine. It's a new year, so if you're looking to cut back on your consumption, why not switch to a new nicotine product that you can actually feel good about? If you are flying or traveling and you're not going to be able to smoke or take your vape with you, this is a great way to keep your cravings at bay. They have a bunch of different flavors like fruity, minty, and strengths from four milligrams all the way up to eight milligrams. So you know exactly the dose that you are getting. If you are cutting back, this is great for assisting. And if you are looking to just get an assist with some creative work that you are doing, nicotine has been used as a nootropic and a creative assistance for literally centuries. So head to Lucy dot co and use the promo code mw20 at checkout that's lucy.co if you're in the uk it's uk.lucy.co the code mw20 to get 20 percent off everything also i must read this disclaimer warning this product contains nicotine nicotine is an addictive chemical 
Remember, if you're interested in a better way to use nicotine, visit lucy.co with the promo code MW20. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all need help at some point in our lives, whether it's because of stress at home or work or loneliness. It can be invaluable to know that there's someone professionally trained who can help us get through whatever we're facing. Over 2 million people have taken charge of their mental health with BetterHelp's online service. It removes all the hassle and awkwardness that can be involved in finding a therapist and gives you some essential, simplified steps instead. There are a broad range of experts available categorized by their speciality or combination of specialities like addiction, social anxiety, or relationships. You can go and read the testimonials on BetterHelp's website to read the hundreds and hundreds of reviews which are added every day to help you choose the right therapist for you. You won't find anywhere near this many reviews for regular therapists. So if you're lonely or struggling out there, there are people you can talk to who can help. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, and you can send a message to your counsellor anytime so you don't even have to leave the house. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling, and financial aid is available. It's literally a quicker, cheaper, and more convenient way to start doing therapy. And if you head to betterhelp.com slash modernwisdom, you can get 10% off your first month. And there is a free quiz that will take you through all the different options and try to identify what they can do for you. Betterhelp.com slash modernwisdom for 10% off your first month and to take their free quiz. But now, please welcome Derek Barris. Derek Barris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you uh, reaching out and having me on. So I got all happy and proud of myself uh, over the last couple of years or so because I'd noticed a mechanism occurring where um, spiritual yoga moms, far-left spiritual yoga moms, and sort of right-wing trolls appeared to be horseshoeing some of their worldviews um, to uh, coalesce online. And I was all sort of pleased with myself that I'd unearthed this kind of interesting dynamic that I thought was going on. And then it turns out that this is quite a well-known dynamic that has been going on, a mechanism that's been occurring for quite a while, which has a term, conspirituality, which describes the overlap of conspiracy theories with spirituality, typically of New Age varieties. Contemporary conspirituality became common in the 1990s, apparently. Yes, I actually wouldn't say it was that well known. Uh, Even today, I track the term on Twitter, and there are constantly people who are just discovering the term. So I wouldn't feel bad (laughs) about uh, having stepped into this world in such a manner. Uh, It was academically coined in 2011 uh, by Charlotte Ward and David Voas. But it really didn't get a lot of traction as a paper until the very, just before the pandemic began, actually, a philosopher from the UK named Jules Evans wrote a Medium article where he unearthed that term. And that's how I found out about it. And then I wrote a subsequent article for a publication I used to work for called Big Think. And that eventually led to the podcast of that name. So it's really it, it 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 we can look back in reflection and trace it back to the 60s we can tra- trace it back honestly to the beginning of the 19th century with Emerson Emerson and Thoreau's work but 
it really still is a new concept that I think a lot of people are trying to wrap their heads around. Although I think the precursors, you know, in hindsight, everything makes sense and you can trace them back from there. Yeah. Well, I think one of the interesting things in 2022, especially, is that calling something a conspiracy theory seems to be uh, quite problematic now. So after a few decades of using it to refer to sort of all manner of crimes, whether it's rumors or misinformation or disinformation or general fuckery by the government or corporate media that ends up being proven as true or not being proven as true, it's kind of memed and legitimated the term into a particularly weird place. And it's it's almost a little bit useless now, as far as I can see. I remember I interviewed for my older podcast before Conspirituality, which is called Earthrise. I got to talk to Dan Carlin of Hardcore History. And I remember asking him specifically, when historians 100 years from now look back at this time, how are they going to be able to make sense of what was going on with so much information? And his idea was that the cream always rises to the top. And I think his work has, you know, shown that in a lot of ways, given how diligent he is with what he does. But we're in a completely new environment now. And I agree with you that the term conspiracy theory is overused in a lot of ways. It still has validity and there are still real world examples we can point to about it. But everything gets so jumbled when everyone has a voice and there's so much misinformation and disinformation that floats around that you can never really identify where the source material comes from that it's completely disorienting when you're looking at your feed and seeing all that information come through to identify what are the actual conspiracies, what are what have levels of truth in them that we should explore further, and what is purely just trolling to see if it can get traction. Yeah, the interesting thing, I suppose, about Dan is that being a historian, he is going to be looking retrospectively. And it's easy to say, oh, the cream rises to the top with the benefit of hindsight, because the stuff that wasn't true tends to kind of decay and fall off. But when you're in the midst of it, every different proposal of a description about how reality exists kind of seems like it might be equally possibly true. Yeah. And for the most part, I, there is a common uh, understanding in history that the winners write the history. Yeah, that's so, true. <laughs> so even then, you're dealing with source material that is coming from a side. Uh, for the most part, I think if you actually go back to the precursors of written language with hieroglyphs or different forms of, uh, you know, currencies or, or things that we we can speculate on, we can actually piece together a, a better understanding because historians have more to work with. But as soon as you start getting to memoirs and government-sponsored written logs, then you're going to be skewed in one direction or the other. So it's it's extremely exciting to look back at history, but it's also quite challenging. What types of people would you say are the most vulnerable to conspiracy theories or conspiratorial thinking uh, and or the intersection with the spirituality element as well? Well, I'll answer that in two ways. I'll go broad and then a little more towards conspirituality. The broad one is and this isn't, uh, you know, a 100% bulletproof, but in general, it's often people without strong social support networks. Uh, if you're spending a lot of your time online and you're disconnected from your tribe or your groups or the people that you're around that can check you, then, you know, it's very easy to get indoctrinated into any sort of ideologies. Uh, one reason where 
you know, I've worked in fitness and the wellness industry for decades. And one reason I feel like that I never fell into any sort of rabbit hole was because I have a large network of friends from a wide group from many different groups. And anytime I would float something that seemed a little ridiculous, I would get called out. And that's really important. Like those checks and balances are necessary. And even though everything feels so close because of these, uh, you know, I've never met you in person. We're just meeting now, but you know, we can have rapport and build a relationship from this. And that gives a false sense of security that doesn't actually necessarily exist. So those real world connections, the lack of them make people very vulnerable to conspiracies. Now, specifically to conspirituality and, and the wellness influencers and people who are indoctrinated into these ideas, uh, the language that has been going on in yoga studios since I began my practice and study in the mid nineties has always veered toward what we now recognize as this merging, meaning the idea that, for example, you know your body best, you're your own doctor, your brain is your own pharmacy. All these ideas have, this rhetoric has been perpetuated throughout this industry for a long time. So when you get to something like a pandemic, you have a community that is generally not engaged in their local civics. They don't necessarily vote. They don't know who the representatives are. They don't really have to pay attention to politics. And then you have a slightly privileged class that can afford the supplements and the nootropics and they can afford to eat organic. Well, they be, they get caught up in this closed system where they feel as though their reality is reality. And so they become very vulnerable to conspiracy theories as well because well, if it's not affecting my life, then why should I, you know, it must not be real. And that's just not, you know, if you look at it from a globalized perspective, that's just not how the world operates. Yeah. So there's kind of two, two rules, or at least two on averages here. One of them being people that are incredibly isolated and another being people who are also kind of isolated, but isolated within a very tight sphere community. Correct. Yes. And and it, it definitely changed. I always look at Instagram as the point where it changed. When I began my practice in yoga, a lot of the conversations, they were local, right? It started in college in New Jersey, but then living in New York City, you know, so the studios, you'd get into these conversations with people. And the conversations really trended around what's the correct shoulder alignment in downward dog or what does this yama or niyama represent like let's talk about the philosophy of it in 2011 when you had this real uptick in people showing off the poses uh, and then branding them and then selling their supplements and whatever their whatever courses online whatever they're doing on their instagram feed that created a real different dynamic and it did introduce more people to yoga and different practices but at the same time it made it very about the image and the lifestyle instead of the practice and that's where eventually things like QAnon slipped into the hashtags and was able to infiltrate that community hang on QAnon infiltrated the yoga community oh absolutely that's really the roots of the podcast in many ways yes. okay talk to me about that well <laughs> So as I said, I began my career in journalism as a local news reporter in 1997, and I would cover zoning board meetings and school board meetings and go to the politicians' houses and knock on their doors. And it's 
that is where politics really happens. We we get caught up in the you know the the what's ever happening on Twitter, but it still happens regionally. And what I noticed as I entered the wellness community and space again is this lack of political dis engagement. And so when the pandemic happened, you have a community that is highly disengaged from politics, especially local politics, highly disengaged from public health, because we haven't had any serious pandemics or anything of that nature in our lifetime. And all they had was their news sources, which were usually social media feeds, which depended upon the people that you followed. The term pastel QAnon was introduced around the time at the beginning of the pandemic to show how far-right conspiracy theories started infiltrating into wellness community through hashtags. And that specifically happened through what was happening in the chans on QAnon. And the first point of infiltration was actually with 5G, this idea that 5G was causing COVID. That was now, David Icke's sort of big contribution, right? He did right, whatever, he was, three or four episodes with Brian Rose that broke YouTube for a little bit. Right. And he's still on it. He just recently did a series on Gaia where he's still promoting that narrative of 5G. And the thing about 5G is it, it, people will only follow uh, any sort of conspiracy as far and as they will until it inconveniences them. So if they pick up their phone and it works a second faster than it used to, Ultimately, they're going to forget about 5G and the same thing is going to happen with 6G, 7G. It's going to keep happening and people are going to forget it because they have short attention spans and because the technology, they want it to work as quickly as possible. So that entered the community and then quickly kind of faded. Now, as I said, this was the first time in all of our lives that we were locked in. We were forced to stay inside. And if you don't know where to look for news and you have a distrust of certain news sources, and you're following your influencers, and they say, don't look at that, look at what's happening on these Chan boards, that's the real truth. Well, that's very seductive, this idea that you have some inside knowledge that other people don't have. That's also been embedded in the yoga community for a long time. It's like, well, I can meditate, and I have this breathwork practice, and I'm connecting to spirit, so I have the inside track to true spirituality. Uh, and so from there, the, the real point of infiltration and what has perpetuated was the anti-vaccine rhetoric, which has continued and will continue for a long time. That ideology is not new. Uh, it began when Louis Pasteur's experiments started with vaccines. So there's always been anti-vax sentiment. But at that time, that started becoming part of the worldview. Oh, there's there's this virus, eventually there's going to be vaccines, and that's where the microchips will come in. And that was coming from the QAnon chan boards and the feeds, and then that was fed directly into the wellness community who have this idea of bodily sovereignty. And so that is what created this juggernaut that we track and cover on the podcast. It seems like um, gate-kept knowledge we have a unique insight or we are a special group or a, a particularly uh, unique type of person is one of the tropes that seems to be being used here. Do conspiracies tend to have some common themes or agendas with them that you can kind of pick up on? The inside group knowledge is one of them. This idea that the, the, there are these forces external that are trying to oppress society in some manner 
And to be clear, there are our banking system is a good example of that. Uh, and and healthcare has many problems. Uh, one of the funny criticisms that we've gotten is that we're shills for big pharma because we promote vaccines. And my last book on psychedelic therapy, half of the book was talking about all of the problems with the pharmaceutical industry because of mental health treatments. But everything gets scrambled when you have the binaries that are presented on social media. And so specifically with these groups, this idea that wink, wink, this is really what's going on. And now you know it so that we can share in this. That's very seductive to people, especially if their only connection is through the technology at that time. Well, that's a, a binding mechanism, right? It makes you feel like you're a part of something. It makes you feel like you're special. Um, and that creates a, an immediate in-group, out-group dynamic. Absolutely. And we've even noticed that with our podcast. I mean, admittedly, we're all left of center on the podcast. But even the three of us don't agree on certain topics, and we'll express that. And even within our uh, our listenership, if we stray too far off of something that a certain base doesn't agree with, then they come after us. It's it's um, this in-group mentality persists across the political spectrum right now. Yeah, it's um, I, I thought about this the other day. I might do a newsletter on it. That one of the most painful, insulting, irritating things that you can do on the internet is to disprove the avatar that somebody had of you in their head. <laughs> somebody thinks that you're a particular person and maybe it turns out that you quite, quite weren't quite that. And that is because it's inconvenienced them. They've had to face the potential that they're untrue. And there's another part of this, which is something I think Jordan Peterson does get right, where he says that um, when people live in archetypes, what we're able to do, if we can, if we know one view that a person holds and we can accurately predict everything else that that person holds it makes them quite predictable they're actually quite a safe person to be around because you don't there's no nuance there's no danger of them deviating from one thing so when you've got this projection around the direction that you think that Derek or Chris are going to go in and then they deviate from that you actually think oh hang on a second maybe this person isn't as trustworthy as I thought that they were. Now, it's not about trust. It's about the fact that you easily want to be able to predict their behavior in future. But I, my bro science idea is that that plays a role in it as well. I was listening recently to uh, Sam Harris had a roundtable and David Frum and Applebaum, George Packer were involved. But David Frum said he has a rule, which is if he's on Twitter and he sees someone whose name he doesn't know, he doesn't then go start talking about that person. But that doesn't really exist in a lot of Twitter culture or social media culture you, in general. Do you mean that um, he wouldn't take a single instance of what that person says as a representative? Right, okay, yeah. Correct, okay. yes, exactly, well put. What a uh, terrifyingly and, reasonable way to exist. <laughs> uh, I don't know, um, you know, I, I've read Peterson, I've covered him for Big Think, I haven't been happy with uh, certain directions, so I don't know that particular uh, quote from him, so I can't comment on that. But the idea behind it of 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 yes there's it's basically you imprint onto these figures and influences that you have and then when you realize that they're not thinking exactly everything that's in your head well i mean in general humans would then be able to discuss debate and dialogue 
I've been involved in some serious attacks or debates online. And I'm like, if we were all together in the same room, this would never go down this way. I have never once been in a situation of discussion among people that left in the same manner that happens on social media. And I understand that there are different dynamics and technology does that. But I really think about every time I post or say something, I think if I was in the room with them right now, would I say it this way? And also, what else do you lose? This happened recently because I made some comments on Joe Rogan that weren't appreciated by all of our listeners. And the way that I wrote it, then it was in my voice and the way it was read were different. And I get that because you don't get inflections. You don't get pantomimes. You can't see the expression. You can, forget Sark. I'm a very sarcastic person. I'm always fielding stuff about sarcasm because uh, just on Twitter alone, if you don't know me, you'll read it in a completely different way. And that's that's a real challenge when operating in, in these structures and trying to trying to you know, provide valuable information to spark conversation with people, but not to be taken in a complete 180 of what you actually were intending to say. It's it's challenging. Well, this feeds into the in-group, out-group tribalism mentality, right? That you can, what everybody is always looking to do, and I, I don't want to call, I learned about the purity spiral, and I'm always hesitant about learning a new heuristic and then trying to apply it to everything, because it's kind of like the whatever the new toy that you've gotten and you want to kind of make it like that. <laughs> but I do think that there's, I do think there's an element of this where everybody, or many people online are bound together by mutual distaste of an outgroup more than they are mutual love of an in-group. And I think that there was some stats around this to do with, if you looked at voting um, patterns in 2012, people were more passionate about their hatred of the other than they were about the love of the the one that they voted for. So Democrats were more distasteful of conservatives than they were liking of Democrats, and the same was true vice versa. Um, but that makes the group very fragile, right? It, it's a very very fragile way to hold any sort of community together because you're constantly vigilant. You're always on the lookout for who might be the next heretic or who might be the next person. And another part of this that Jonathan Haidt talks about in uh, The Happiness Hypothesis is he says that um, the reason that we love scandal and outrage is that it allows us to feel the moral emotion of outrage and superiority whilst having done nothing moral to earn it. So we get to see somebody else do something that is wrong and we get to stand, our morality stands on the shoulders of a person that's fucked up while no one looks at us. So I think that there's two dynamics there that are maybe playing a bit of a role. Absolutely. And, and hate, people tried to cancel hate. And he who has contributed greatly to uh, our understanding of, of evolutionary psychology and biology. Um, th that, it, it, the, I, I love technology. My father was a computer programmer starting in the 60s. I grew up around it. I work full time in cryptocurrency. I've worked in that field for about five years. I think the applications of technology are wonderful, but they we have to know the limitations and the failures when it comes to communication. And the this this group mentality, and not to say I haven't gotten caught up in it too. I mean, I've had to check myself in the past as well. 
I hope at least that what I bring to the podcast and my work is informed by the work that I've done in the real world, having spent decades in journalism, having worked specifically in world music and having gotten to travel around and working with a lot of artists across the world and understanding that not every one sees America the way that they Americans see America, for example, was very illuminating to me when you get outside uh, and trying to bring that perspective. And you were so right with the avatar thing, especially when they don't even have their photo or name on them. It's like you're screaming at a void right now. And all that's going to do is increase your cortisol and your frustration and make you not sleep at night instead of actually pushing any conversations forward. And it takes your eye off of what's really important with if you want to actually impact society in positive ways, it's not going to happen by screaming at someone on Twitter. Speaking of America and how it's seen by the rest of the world, do you think that America as a nation is more conspiratorial on average? Is it the most conspiratorial in the world? I, I don't know about most. I can speak through the lens of conspirituality and our listenership and some data that we found. So we tend, from people who reach out to us, our listenership is predominantly America, Canada, the UK and Australia, for example. And a lot of the what we call conspirituality happens in those countries, as well as in sort of, uh, let's say, colonized refuges like Costa Rica or Bali, where white or Europeans or Americans have gone and basically started yoga communes. Uh, so a lot of the thinking happens in those areas. I would say that privilege is often an indicator of conspiracy, Conspiracy, not overall, by the way, but specific to consp the wellness industry. Because as I referenced earlier, people who have a certain usual middle to upper middle and above class lifestyle just basically defaults to believing, well, why can't everyone have this? And that happens on the left and the right. That's, you know, that cuts across the board. And to be clear, I'm speaking in broad strokes right now. There are people within all sorts of demographics that don't fit that bill. But from what we've noticed, conspiracy will often happen in, in these countries. Um, and I will also point to something that is very apparent right now, and it, it flares up at times like what we've just happened, the convoy and the freedom of, in America being around masks and vaccines. And then something like Ukraine happens um, it really is a, is a sound gut check to remind Americans what democracy is. And while it's in no way perfect and needs a lot of help that look at what happens in countries where you don't have some of those freedoms and don't be so quick to judge and then just stand on a soapbox, like listen to what other people from other places are saying. And they usually tend to be not as white and not as privileged. One of the things that we've seen over the last two years has been a kind of a veil lifting, at least with regards to me, of my my faith in media and and the powers that be and stuff. Because I think you know they uh, they fucked up a, a bunch of times, and a lot of the time people have commented on this as, "Look, you you totally shouldn't trust them." However, look at how many creators online that have got platforms have just jumped from one grift to the next without a second thought and I, I can't remember who it was someone put this really i think it was tim kennedy who put this really famous um meme up about um last week i was a, a a vaccine expert and this week i'm an expert in international relations and public policy for for ukraine 
But the reason that that's so funny is that it is such a trope. And I think that that, you know, just if you're going to use a heuristic to try and think about the sort of people that you're taking, or media organizations, right, that you're taking your information from online, no one is a specialist in everything. And people need to have humility around not knowing the thing. I'm going to guess that another hallmark of uh, conspirituality leaders is a a sense of like omnipresent, omnipotent um, understanding and insight into kind of pretty much everything that they need to. Right, exactly. And that was, again, apparent in what's happening in Ukraine. We just, our last week's episode was Conspirituality Go to, Goes to War, which was covering all of the influencers. And so look, let's look at that through two layers. First of all, they've had a lot of the spotlight on them for their rhetoric for the past two years. And now all of a sudden the news is focused elsewhere they're monetizing their streams. They're like, hey, this is the attention economy. We need to stay relevant. So we're just going to start waxing poetic about Ukraine, which is the second thing about just saying things that don't make any sense. So one thing that we identified often were people saying things like, war only happens when you're divided internally, right? And that it's such nonsense. Um, Basically, the I, okay, so stepping back in the yoga sphere, You've had events happen for decades, things like meditations for world peace. The idea that if enough people got together and meditated, the rest of the world would feel the energy (laughs) and then they would relax all of the problems that they have. This is some Rhonda Byrne shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, very influential in this community. (laughs) And so. So the the idea that you're split internally is that either you have some psychic rift, meaning that your thoughts are not strong enough to create the reality that you want it to create, or that looking at world leaders, that they're not spiritual enough and they're only doing this because they don't have the empathy and the compassion for the society. Oh, that happens to be uh, developed through the practices that I have accomplished. And so they'll just put out these messages on social media with bullshit like that and then put that forward as truth. And I want to pull on something else you said there, which relates. I think that the term mainstream media is just nonsense in many ways. Having worked in, again, local reporting for a number of years, media entities are competing organizations. They're not all together in cahoots trying to like put forward an agenda that said the necessity of breaking news as quickly as possible before anyone else has created very bad incentives for the industry that so i'm not giving them a free pass but if you are and i'm i'm just making up a number here if you're the New York Times and you have a million daily readers, I think it's above that, but you know, their Twitter following, whatever, you know, something of that nature. And then you're someone with a podcast, and I'm just pulling Rogan out because I know the number of 12 million monthly listeners. You're a media figure at that time. And if you have, I mean, we have 370,000 downloads a month for our podcast, for example. We're putting forward media. And I take that seriously from my training in terms of trying to provide the correct information. So the idea that all of the media is in cahoots and just putting forward bad messaging, it doesn't actually happen. It depends on where your attention is focused. 
because all of this is media at this point. You have established organizations, you have organizations with specific incentives, and then you have people who are just kind of making shit up and then putting it forward and trying to discern what actually floats to the top there is, is, is its own challenge. But to just label it as all the one thing, it's usually presented as the organizations that I don't agree with are all in cahoots. Oh, but I'll share an article from here because that's the real thing. And then that's its own problem with our media environment. I think you're right. What I, I think what I probably meant there was that there is a particular standard that you expect corporate press to be held to because they're the ones that have been doing it for the most amount of time. They're the ones that are supposed to be adhering to journalistic standards. They're the ones that have got the most number of researchers and so on and so forth. So um, in the back of my mind, I have an increased degree of skepticism when I read some fella's substack versus when I read something on a big media outlet and therefore I hold that media outlet to a higher standard which means that it's more easy for them to fail at meeting that standard you know and as well I think it's a trickle-down effect of seeing certain government officials you know maybe Anthony Fauci would like the mask thing it's like one example I've not got into COVID really at all on the show um I'm not bothered about trying to politicize that but the um flip-flopping around masks it's like a, a a fairly obvious example where you have somebody that's in a position of authority that has kind of very publicly fallen flat on their face and kind of changed their messaging a little bit. Uh, and one of the causes of that for me has been um, an increase in or a lack of faith, right, in the powers that be knowing what they're actually supposed to be doing. And then you think, okay, well, if maybe if they don't know and they make mistakes i had this i think this is quite a british thing they're quite quite an orderly um nation i had a lot of faith sort of two and a half years ago that the people in power knew what they were doing and maybe during times of non-crisis they broadly they're better presumably in case chaos you're going to be more difficult uh, however the last couple of years really has kind of exposed some of the um ineptitude I think. I mean, in the UK, we've had like the guy that's in charge of public health snogging his secretary on CCTV, and you know the dude that was the communications like um, guy or like the right hand of Boris Johnson going up to Barnard Castle to do whatever. Like, just the very humanising of a lot of the errors that people in positions of power were making remind you that they're just as fallible and idiotic as you probably are which kind of breaks that them and us thing and i held them in high esteem and now maybe a little bit less and that then trickles down to press two and you think well hang on i had this really really high standard that i was holding everybody to and then maybe not so much so perhaps the waterline of what i expect um an independent producer i have a degree of skepticism around them which is tuned up and I wouldn't have done previously with regards to the corporate press. And then now with that as well, I'm thinking, oh, well, God, does anyone know what they're talking about? Well, you, that's good that you have that level of discernment. I would argue that a lot of people don't um, in terms of differentiating between the standards of a New York Times or a Substack and even looking where the Substack comes from, because some of them are funded by media organizations, which is fine. It's just a different platform. But looking at the the bona fides of the people writing them is also important. and. You also bring up a good point about public health. The, the public health communication, there were blunders. And some of them were expectable because science is always changing or our understanding of things are always changing, especially when you have a novel virus. We're trying to figure it out. And part of my issue is that 
there have been mistakes. And then sometimes we'll see the influencers continue to hold up these old mistakes that were already admitted to and moved on from, at least there were apologies for and being like, okay, we know better now, but still holding them up as indicative of, no, this is, oh, this has been part of the plan all along and see how they were manipulating us. And no, again, the the level of humility that exists in the yoga and wellness world is very, there's not much humility there. And from the very least, the, the, at some of the figures, not all the figures, but those experts do come clean when they they mess up. Even recently, Matt Taibbi, uh, you know, was just like, "Okay, I messed up. I did not expect um, Russia to invade, and I wrote all these things, and I messed up with that." And I'm like, "Okay, I don't agree with you on some things, but that's good that you can see that. And if there was more of that, that would be very helpful from all of the different vectors that you were pointing out." The problem with that, and this was something that I learned from Douglas Murray, he said that any time that you concede that you've done something wrong or that you don't adhere to the um, ideological projection that your side has, it's seen by the other side as a chink in your armor and as your own side as a lack of conviction towards like, the, the whatever the purpose is or the, the, the party line. Um, and I think that it very much causes people to know in the back of their mind that if I admit that I'm wrong, this is going to be a vector of attack for the people that are against me. And it's going to be a signal of um, non-loyalty or non-compliance or whatever to the people that are supposed to be on my side too, because it's this very kind of rough-hewn um, discourse that we have online. And it's very sort of, bi- you said it earlier on, very binary thinking. You're either and- with us or you're against us. And again, not how you would act in person. Forgiveness is such a powerful human connection. Saying I'm sorry when you're in the room with someone and actually meaning it, it, that brings healing with it and that can let people move forward. But one one incident, um, so what I mentioned earlier about the Rogan tweet that I had, it was, it, it basically had to do with like all of the different arrows that were coming at him from all different directions at once. And I was sort of fixated on the COVID misinformation. And my point was being like, let's focus because part of the problem with the left is that they don't focus long enough on issues, whereas the right tends to sustain issues for generations and has the discipline to be able to do that. And not that they're perfect at it either with social media and such, but that does that is more indicative of that particular political leaning. And one thing that I noticed when I released it was a number of people saying, if you just apologize, we'll forgive you. And I'm like, but I don't not believe what I said. (laughs) So you're asking me to apologize for something that is I'm actually not sorry for. And you can't, so you can't create actual progress emotionally or intellectually in these mediums if you can't have actual conversations. What they're after there is fealty, right? Yes. That's yes. what they want. They want yes. fealty. Give me, so explain to me what conspiracy theories or conspirituality cults, what do they offer the people that follow them? Uh, I would say a, a sense of in-group mentality, as we've identified, and I think that 
virtual reality will offer new forms of indoctrination. I don't want to get too far from your question, but as we look at how these technologies are working, one thing that has existed for a long time in cults is the eye, the eye gaze, right? The, the cult leader who will stare in your eyes for long periods of time to invoke some sort of emotional response. This is well-founded in the cult literature. And that doesn't translate as well on social media, but you can identify it with some of the yogis who are just like, they're, the light is right here, they have a halo, and they're locked into you the whole time. And I think that will further as we get to augmented reality and virtual reality. Uh, so that's the method. That's one of the methods that they'll use. Um, they, they offer that feeling of, I'm with you, right? I'm with you right now and, and you alone. Um, we, we're working on an episode on Russell Brand who uses this technique and we've identified that. He's actually used it for a long time. But there's that feeling of camaraderie that exists there. Uh, and in general, it also has to do with verifying pre-existing beliefs. There are serious problems with our agricultural system and our food system, our supply chain. There are serious problems with our public health uh, and, and medicine in general, especially in a capitalist system. Taken to the extreme, though, you have this fancified notion of I'm only eating food that I grow the supplements that I know that come from this culture that respect their indigenous people that I'm taking and putting it into, you mentioned the purity spiral before purity is probably one of the biggest ideas that pervades these influencers that we're talking about. My sovereign body, I know what's best and the purification of that body, the purification of thoughts as well as bodily representation is very seductive to people who get caught up by these influencers and then eventually get roped into their downline on their sales, on their courses, their workshops, whatever it happens to be. What, why is it that a conspiracy on its own isn't enough? Now, obviously you get everything comes in different flavors, but why is it, or what extra does the spiritual element add on to the conspiracy part that, that sort of, gives it what more stickiness perhaps or more effectiveness what how does it deliver it yeah it's the it's the feeling i just finished next week's episode which has to do with this idea that terrain theory is right and germ theory is wrong and i, I won't get into all the specifics of that but Beauchamp's works on terrain theory has been disproven pastor went out that's what modern medicine is based on and again leaving aside the problems with the industries of medicine but that's what it's based on but if you think about terrain theory, which basically posits that you, the germs only make you sick if your environment or your thought patterns are off, if you're not living a specific lifestyle or there are environmental conditions that are off, not that you and I are hanging out in a room and you sneeze and I end up taking that into my body, right? It has to do with something metaphysical, right? Well, that invokes a feeling, and in this world that we cover, feelings will trump facts or science or research at any moment. If this thing makes me feel good, then I'm going to trust that. And that's coming from the brick and mortar cults. That's how cult leaders have gotten people to leave their families and come into their groups because they feel something that they weren't getting elsewhere. Uh, and that is also what's happening now in, in these tr online tribes where 
you never know what the other end of that avatar is going through. You don't know their isolation. You don't know their family dynamic. Um, we've received hundreds of people who've lost family members and they are no longer in contact. Divorces, child separation. Like there's a lot of people who've lost people over this time. And it usually has to do with that feeling of the what the other person was providing for them. You talk a good bit about yoga and Buddhist groups as well. I would have thought my experience with Buddhism and yoga practice, dissolving of the ego, letting go of the self, all that sort of stuff, it seems like, it, it seems quite an, anti to what I would have presumed would have occurred in these groups. So how is it that that's coming about? Well, you're talking about being already, if you're entering the, dis the dissolution of ego, for example, you're already halfway up of Maslow's pyramid, right? So you've already have the basics taken care of, uh, you, you know, to, to think about it from the triune brain model, you're not in this, you're not in the, the, um, the spinal cord stem anymore. You're, you're up in the prefrontal cortex at this time. So you're, you're living in a way that you can start to, you have the comforts of survival already taken care of. Now, the problem is, again, looking specifically at the, the pandemic, and then all of a sudden, you know, I go to yoga at 10 o'clock, then I go to brunch with my friends, and then I do this and that. Wait, I have to be locked in this room? Well, you've now trapped me. You've taken away my comfort and my what I know as my survival mechanisms. And so you can only reach certain states of being in terms of transcending if your basics are taken care of, when someone says, hey, those basics no longer exist anymore, you can't buy your toilet paper, you can't, whatever it happens to be, we will very quickly revert to that scared animal ready to lash out. And so religion in general is always aspirational. It provides comfort. It does provide survival mechanisms as well. But when you talk about the manifestation of yoga and Buddhist in a predominantly secular culture in America that is predominantly privileged in a lot of ways, then you're you're you know you, you are already talking about being partway up that pyramid, and then you take it away from them, and so you're going to see very bad behavior happen. And I, I think we've seen that. I'm getting a bit confused here because it seems like on one hand. Conspiracies are a um, bourgeois indulgence, uh, and yet on the other hand, it's this primal response. No, I I would say that uh, in terms of the bourgeois indulgence, I'm speaking specifically to spirituality and the people we cover. You know, Bigfoot, aliens, all of that that has existed across the board, and you can look at them how you want. So that's that I'm speaking very specifically of. The, the beat that we cover okay and the part of the response is in often a some sort of physical threat that people go through i'm going to guess does this occur uh when people have got maybe terminal illness diagnoses and stuff like that as well or uh if people have recently gone through grievances um sorry i lost the thread a little bit there um are people more vulnerable if that's one of the situations that's occurred you've mentioned about people losing elements of themselves and feeling some sort of mortal threat i was trying to roll that forward into it, some other it. situations 
Okay, so let's look at both of those. So first off, yes, grievance is always a pathway to indoctrination if you're not careful. If you are, I just lost my 22-year-old cat last week. And he was, you know, I've lived with him in seven apartments in three states. Like, he was very meaningful to me. And for a few days after, I was kind of walking around, just like keep expecting to see him, and he's not there. And that puts you in a particular state where you're more open for information and potential indoctrination if someone slips in and be like, oh, you're not feeling good. Well, I have this thing. Try it out, maybe it'll make you feel better. Oh, it's a breathing technique. Wow, I felt really bad for three days. Now I'm doing this breath work and I feel amazing. This person is amazing. So yes, absolutely on that level. Back to the pyramid idea, and this might be where some confusion, ha confusion happened. Privilege often means that you get so accustomed to your lifestyle, like the fact that I can set my thermometer to whatever I want and be a, live at that, you know, that very thin range of homeostasis in terms of what I can tolerate. Um, that's not reality. That's a comfort that certain people have. But when we think of survival, we're thinking of, oh, I just need something to sleep under and some food. But that's not how we actually think of survival. We think of it as whatever level we are at. And then on top of that, we're, we're constantly aspiring to higher levels, which in America specifically usually has to do with income or things that we own or can acquire quickly. And so that's specifically what I meant when I was going through that pyramid idea is that people had what they thought was their survival threshold. And then that was taken away from them. And some people, we talked about humility, some people was like, oh, wow, I can live with less. I actually feel better with less. But that wasn't the case for everyone. What types of people become conspirituality leaders? If you were to create a on average avatar, what would the, <laughs> what would the traits be? They usually, I mean, they have, most of the time they have some presence. They're able to communicate within the mediums of whatever they're working in. And so a number of our figures were brick and mortar that meaning that they ran workshops, they were public figures in real life that they were able to translate through their technology. And then some people are just fantastic on TikTok. They know how to edit and light and they know the keywords. They are know you the telling hashtags. me that TikTok's a, a feeder mechanism for cults? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> TikTok's what, dude, I, I'm so glad. Of all of the vices that technology's given me and the whatever, the synapses that have been laid down, the fact that TikTok isn't one of them is something that I'm going to be eternally grateful for just having never downloaded. Yeah, I, I, I occasionally will post, but I never scroll the feed. It's even for my Gen X brain, it's too much. Laying down that myelin's <laughs> dangerous, man. You do not want to get into that rhythm. Right, right. And I have I have friends who I'm 46 and I have friends my age or older who that is their that is their addiction. They got into that that quick niche. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. Um oftentimes with the the and I'll use the term grifters because a lot of these people are grifters. And one question we often ask and it's very hard to ever indicate intentionality with someone. It's just, it's impossible unless you specifically know them and you know why they're doing it. But um, I always wonder with some of the figures, do they really believe this or do they just see an avenue to monetization? Um, and that is very difficult to assess at times. But I will say that what usually cuts across the board with the influencers is that they're selling something. 
And whether that is direct with, again, supplement, nootropic, like course, whatever that happens to be, or whether that's just your attention for a future project or book sale, they are dealing in the attention economy and they want as much of it as possible turned onto them and what they're saying. And I'm pretty uh, confident in saying that cuts across the board. Would that not be the same with, say, you guys, though? You know, you have a podcast, you need people to, you, know, you you think that it's interesting and a value, therefore more people watching it is good. Where What's the distinction mm-hmm. with the conspirituality guru? Where did they take it to one step further there? Sure. Uh, well, in terms of the monetization, the three of us work separately. I work full time. Um, we have a Patreon and my feeling has always been, you will allow us, if you really find value in our work, you'll allow us to to do more of it if you support us, but less than 1% of our listenership supports us on that mechanism. Um, so we don't sell anything. I mean, we do have a book coming out now as well. I saw the takes... announcement. Congratulations. Thank you. That's, and we're, but the three of us are all writers. We're all trained writers. So that was always a goal was we were, we've been writing articles and such, uh, along that. And, and of course, yes, I, I want to be successful. I want to sell books. Uh, I completely understand them. Uh, understand that fact and agree with it. I think that, and again, this is where it comes into intentionality and it's so hard to, to really understand. Um, I am going to put forward the work that I've investigated and feel is true. If I'm wrong on something, we've made corrections on the podcast. The, the top of every podcast leaves us room to be like, Hey, we said this thing and we were wrong. We own up to when we are wrong. We also own up to when it is speculation because some things we know for sure. And sometimes when we're riffing on something, we will always say, we don't know this, but we're going to speculate on this right now. And, And it fits into a dynamic, but we're not sure on that. That is something that you don't find with a lot of the influ or all the influencers I think they that would we always cover posit themselves as an authority as the authority and the humility that goes along with it is usually some sort of just fake humility. It's just like, I don't know this, but I know this. And, and that I think is an important distinction. Um, I think you are co- completely correct in calling that out and it's tough to assess. Uh, so it's really up to every individual to put forward what they think is the best information. And that's the uh, standard that we try to hold ourselves to. Yeah, I think. One of the challenges that you have is that feedback as well to the creators is always going to be difficult, especially as you start to scale up. Because you, when you first start out, maybe you could read all of the comments, but after a little while you go, I, if I tried to take on board all of this information, I wouldn't do anything else outside of it. And also, I don't know how many of the people that are feeding this back up actually have my best interests at heart, how many of them actually genuinely understand and are bought into what we're trying to do, how many have just stumbled here randomly because of the internet. One thing that I notice is um, rare, but I find to be a very um, charming element that people that I listen to have. If they are receiving criticism or if they're going through a difficult time or whatever, a degree of vulnerability and openness around that, I I see that a lot of the time, or very rarely would I see some of the sort of conspirituality influences ever genuinely seem to emotionally connect with the uncertainty that they have the uncertainty would always seem to be quite performative it would be there as a smoke screen for them to sit behind um that you know like the just asking questions type yeah scenario 
Um, whereas some of the guys that I so Lex Friedman's a good example of this. Like he's someone, and not conspirituality like at all. He's like nerd spirituality. Um, but he he is somebody who is. I, I, he genuinely connects emotionally with the fact that he is more ignorant than he would like to be. Um, and I have faith, therefore, that when he messes up, uh, it's in, you know, he was doing his best to try and do things. And I hope that I, I try and do the same on the show too. Um, however, you know, there's an endless litany of um, people who are more uh, unscrupulous with the way that they go about performative ignorance or uncertainty and sort of this lack of emotional connection. I spent my life in media interviewing people. It's my favorite, one of my favorite things to do. Uh, I've done thousands or thousands of interviews and my feeling is always that if I don't know something, I'm going to find someone who knows it and identify them and talk to them about it to get their information. So as I mentioned, we had just done an episode on germ theory uh, I listened to this conversation between two pseudoscience grifters about terrain theory. I could tell it's bullshit, but I couldn't tell why it was bullshit. So we have a friend who has a PhD in molecular biology named Dan Wilson. He runs a channel called Debunk the Funk. Yeah, I've seen uh, he's been doing loads of stuff, right, during COVID. Yes, yes. So I pinged him. I said He's been on before. I said, hey, you've covered these guys. I'm trying to make sense out of this. Can you come on? and explain why this is bullshit. And he did. And that comes out next week. Um, and also, you know, I, I keep referencing this, this incident, but it is pretty fresh with the Rogan thing. I mentioned all of the, the, you have to apologize grief that I got, but I also had a number of people reach out to me and be like, Hey, we love you. We think this is wrong. Here's why. And I was able to invite two of them onto the next podcast to talk about why they thought I was wrong and have conversations. And at that time, I just switched to journalist mode. I just asked questions. I didn't push back. I wanted to hear their perspectives and release it out there. And so if you listen to that episode, you're going to hear myself and Julian, who have our perspective. Matthew has a slightly different perspective on it. And then you're going to hear an infectious disease epidemiologist. And then you're going to hear a civics activist all chime in on this one topic, taking it from different angles and finding where we disagree and agree. And that also is something that I just don't see happening in the conspirituality realm. People will only talk to the people that already agree, and you're not going to see any sort of debate happening on their feeds. And that's unfortunate as well. Um, we've invited a number of the people we cover on the podcast, and so far only Charles Eisenstein has ever accepted and came on for two episodes and still don't agree with what he's saying, but I appreciate that he was willing to take the time and engage in that level. And that is really, really important. I think the binary that you have with regards to debate, one of it being the, um, like Ethan Klein, Steven Crowder, uh, and Sam Cedar situation, which is kind of this super performative, you know, even the, um, I think one of them, their wife was ill or whatever before the thing started and they were recording prior to like the the broadcast beginning and even that was oh i'm very sorry about that and you think that's that's what a person that would care would say um i didn't really trust the like non-performative part of that however um you do get to see really only 
total sort of myopia and um, an insular containing of just speaking to people that agree with the views. Or on the other side of that, if it is going to be a debate, it's bare knuckle, guns out, everything going. And, you know, the version that you've had there, which is kind of a reasonable, can we get somewhere closer to the truth? That's, I mean, one of the reasons that it's not done as much is that it doesn't get as many clicks. You know, if you decide to dunk on someone or use the sarcasm muscle to try and make them seem stupid with, you know, like side-eye jokes and little giggles and stuff like that, that's going to get your audience more riled up or at least the um, less gracious elements of people's like natures within your audience which maybe they would even fact check themselves on and go this is activating a part inside of me that i really wish it wasn't um but that's why certain people gravitate towards certain creators because they continue to press that button they continue to trigger that reaction in them right and you know, it it is challenging for me operating in this medium. Uh, one Twitter feed I follow is the the governor of New Jersey, but it's it's not him running it. It's uh, I'm from New Jersey, so it's 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 just a sarcasm Twitter feed. And in fact, the other day there was something about like what is the native language of New Jersey, and they responded sarcasm because it's just it's so in me, and so sometimes it's hard to you know stop that impulse. And yet the medium doesn't allow for it. But in terms of the debate and the ability to have discourse with people, my academic training is in religion. And I didn't grow up with one. I feel fortunate that I got to college having no religious training whatsoever. I found psychedelics. I found a few Eastern texts. And off I went. And that began my exploration. And one thing about studying comparative religion without having been brought up in one is that you can read all of them, you can find through lines, you can find points of disagreement, and then you can kind of assess, oh, what's good from this that I can take? What should really be left behind? And look at them from that sort of perspective. And that was very important to me as I continued working and as I mentioned, traveling in my work and meeting a lot of different people is that ability to relate to something that they understand without having this, but that's wrong, immediately put on them. Uh, and that's just so hard to do in these mediums. They're they're easier to do in long form podcasts, and that's one reason why I think they've proliferated over the last few years. But in the general, like low attention span mediums that we use, it's it's quite impossible. How effective is deplatforming when it comes to uh, curtailing the growth of certain creators? Because I've kind of heard two sides of the story here. One being that you get this Streisand effect where it brings more eyes to people and they're going to grow in any case in different ways and blah, blah. But then uh, my sense is, at least in my opinion, that doesn't seem to be true. Like when you, you essentially unperson somebody when you take them off of social media and they're out of sight and out of mind. That is a question that lies at the heart of our book in many ways. And uh, we had Imran Ahmed, who was the founder of the Center for Countering, Countering Digital Hate in the UK, on one of our very first episodes to discuss that topic. And now we want to talk to him again almost two years later because there, there are varying opinions on that. What I will say is that with conspirituality influencers in particular, they will announce they're leaving Facebook or Instagram for Telegram for a year 
every day or week because they actually realize that those other channels don't have the same power for them. And so they'll keep announcing they're leaving, but they don't actually leave until they get deplatformed. They're kind of predicting the writing being on the wall. It's going to happen at some point. It's going to happen at some point, and I need to prepare. But they also, and they also, some of them, it would seem that they do it intentionally to put content that would make them get kicked off after months of hinting at they might get kicked off. And you go to their Telegram channels, and they've grown since. Some of them have followings, but not to the degree that they do. Uh, their influence, their influence in the in their in groups, isn't necessarily going to lag because they've if they've gotten them into their Telegram, if they communicate through Signal, Parler, whatever they happen to use, it's going to be strong. You will also often find that. On the Instagrams and YouTubes, they post much more milk toast material, but always tell you to go to Telegram where you're going to see the real material about what they think. So it's kind of layered here. Some some of them will you Christiane Northrop is an example of one who uses her main Twitter, Facebook for the very vanilla sort of material. And then Telegram is just all out Nazi material, like straight up. Here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. If somebody is using a platform which has stricter uh, terms of service, like a Twitter or a YouTube, as the front end of the funnel to get people into another platform which doesn't, and that other platform has um, nefarious, nasty stuff on it, I think that it's still too new to tell that for sure, meaning that a lot of these people have been building up their followings for years, and so it's more reactive now. They use those main channels to get them over, but they didn't set out with the intention of that. I I understand. My question is, if they're saying reprehensible shit in a Telegram, do you think that people should be removed from YouTube or Facebook or something else if they're driving... Do you think that perhaps there should be some kind of cross-pollination between different platforms for you to be at? Do you understand the problem that I'm talking yeah, about no, here? Yeah, that's, that's too dicey. That's yep. too dicey. I mean, one of the things you'll often hear them say, freedom of speech, freedom of speech, these are private companies. And if you start having private companies working together on that level, that gets really dicey there. I, I, would, not, I would not be for that idea. Mm. But we, you, you do have a, a bit of an information hazard here, right? That you can have the well-wrapped version of somebody on the platforms that are discoverability, and then you can have the nastier version of someone on the platforms that are more protected. It is, it is a challenge, but... I just I've worked in technology too long and and I feel I do like freedom of speech is an important aspect. I I think that identifying misinformation that's harming people uh, should be removed. But if you're talking about ideas and then cross platforms, that gets too far afield for me. Yeah, I understand. Is it possible? I had this question asked of me the other day. Do you think it's possible to have an ethical cult? (laughs) <laughs> Were you talking to Jamie Wheel? No, no, I wasn't actually. No, <laughs> I had him on the podcast about a year ago talking about that. Okay, that topic. is it? What did you come to? Is it possible to have one? I don't think so. I think that I, I think that as soon as you label it a group or a cult, that history shows that power dynamics always come into play at some point. As soon as you start to scale. It, it becomes too dicey for that. I think that if you're talking about a small gathering of people who have a certain mindset, let's take 
an ayahuasca circle. And so say you always do it with these 10 people, you have your cornero and you have your ritual. You don't need to label it something. You're not trying to put it out into the world. It helps you. It has some meaning. We don't need to call it a cult. We, you know, it could be a gathering of friends. As soon as you start to scale and you're getting to hundreds or thousands of people, but you want to say it's ethical, I, human nature just shows that it's very difficult to actually pull that off. There's too many competing interests at that point. That's why in conspirituality, we'll see that these people come together for online conferences, but you're not going to see them working together on their own platforms too often. There's too many cults of personality to be able to pull that off. So what, what, part of what you're asking is, is a leaderless cult possible, right? Cause that cult is usually defined by the leader. And as soon as you have one figure to point to, then there's going to be power differentials that happen. Even with the best yoga instructors who are not cult like that I followed, their assistants and the people closest around them would start to form these tribes around them where they practice in the room, how they talk to it. Like, so I, I'm not confident it could ever be pulled off. But you end up with clicks in CrossFit classes, right? You know, you have, you always have the same guys that'll do the same class at the same time and they're Mm -hmm. the the stronger dudes and you know the better looking girls that wear the smaller hot pants or whatever um yeah it's it's an interesting one i uh i've jokingly been referring to like the the pinned the pinned comment on the top of um the timestamps is uh hello cult members like here's the timestamps and now i'm uh second questioning whether or not you can even use cult in a a, like ironic satirical sort of non- true way i don't even know if it, i wonder whether it's such a dangerous term that you can't even really use it it's challenging you know people have pointed out that cults is the root of culture and i get that i was a group fitness instructor at equinox for 17 years leading into the pandemic i i, I completely experienced that the same 40 50 people in the room every week that was their part of their practice and they were there the question to me then becomes are we having this experience in the room together that's very powerful? But then I, as the person leading it, am I trying to take it out of the room? And that's that's something I was always extremely careful. I got into fitness predominantly for physical and not spiritual reasons, and I try not to cross that line the entire time. So if people asked me what to do to protect their knee, I'd give them an answer. If they started asking me something metaphysical, I'd say, I'm not your guy. Uh, so I think that line is extremely important to find. And, that, and that's why, that's what I mean by scaling. You're in the room with the people, you have an experience, awesome. We don't even need to label that. But once you take it out of there and start trying to attract people in, then it becomes problematic. Yeah, I understand. Okay, so as long as I don't get a god complex, then I'll, I'll <laughs> at least be okay for now. So I saw this. Um, I don't follow Paul Graham, although I I, I probably should do because I keep on using his stuff. I saw this tweet from him uh, yesterday. While the far left and far right have a lot in common, the far left is more ideological than the far right, while the far right is more into conspiracy theories than the far left. Interestingly. This means far-right nonsense is more likely to get banned than far-left nonsense. Far-right nonsense gets censored on social media. Far-left nonsense becomes HR policy. What are your thoughts on that? I don't really know how to take it. 
Okay, I'm I'm just hearing it for the first time, so yep. I want to make that clear. Uh, I just did an episode on horseshoe theory recently, which a lot of people push back against. Um, What's horseshoe good, theory uh, okay. for the people that uh, don't know? Yeah, sure. Horseshoe theory is this idea that was um, developed by this researcher called Fay. It had to do with Nazi Germany and this group that broke off of Nazi Germany, Nazi Germany, who were anti-capitalist, and so they disbanded from Hitler and they started their own group. And the idea was they were very left of what he was promoting. And so the idea is that once you get to like that politics is not a straight line, that it's a horseshoe, that the closer you get to the middle, the more the people will get along. And then as you go up that the far left and the far right will start to meet someplace. Now, I think this is true in terms of sentiment and not necessarily policy. Because the policies, what he says about HR rooms, um, the policies of the left and right will manifest very differently. What I focused on, and I admitted that it does not have to necessarily do with Faye's original idea on this, but is that the more dug in that people get on the left and right, the more they're unwilling to engage with ideas that don't conform specifically to what they're saying. I would not say that the far right at this moment is necessarily more conspiratorial. That's the entire field of coverage that we're doing. Now, that said, baked into the term conspiracy theory is the far right conspiracies and the ideology that pulls them over. But at this moment in history, the left is coming up with plenty on their own at the at the fringes. Um, so but when you that's in terms of sentiment, when you step back and look at policy, then you're 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 at your completely different worlds. You have one world that is in good ways, I think, trying to make a more equitable world across genders and across races. At the worst extreme, they're focused more on renaming schools than actually trying to instill a better economic system and actually work on the policies that would do that. In the far right, you have stuff that I generally disagree with a lot more, which has to do with, you know, transgender rights, gay rights, abortion rights, things of that nature. So it's very split apart there. So my top line thought from that is it's just, it's a little too stereotypical to really make an impact there. There's there's so much going on between sentiment and policy that it's hard to discern what he was actually driving at. What are some of the far left cults that have been, what are like the most popular ones that have been going on? Uh, I mean, in, in terms of what we cover, I, I, there, we can debate whether or not you can call them cults, um, because again, a cult is usually defined by having a charismatic leader. Okay. And right now, you have a lot of different people who are just putting forward their viewpoints, and they tend to be boosted up. But there is no single leader of any of these ideas at this moment. It's just a conglomeration of a lot of people. Um, but it, it really it, it has to do with the anti-vaccination. It really rooted there and then spread out from there. So from anti-vax. It got into anti-mask and the efficacy of masks. Um, and from there, it just got, and this is where the crossover happened, that some of these influencers then turned to tactical training and armed training, which I'm not anti-gun, but watching people who are yogis then start to say, we need to protect the land and then start to create actual physical communes, which is happening right now. We've identified at least two. Um, that's where the, the, the crossovers start to happen. Uh, and you see a lot of people who were on the left 
in terms of sentiment crossing over into that space right now. Wild man, the internet's a crazy place. <laughs> it's the <yeah>, craziest. <laughs> uh, Derek Barris, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with what you do, where should they go? Uh, everything filters off of DerekBarris.com uh, and Conspirituality.net is where we host our podcast. Dude, I appreciate you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that if you are listening, you also should be subscribed to my 3-Minute Monday newsletter. It is the best free newsletter on the internet or your money back. Head to chriswillex.com slash books. You'll get a free list of 100 of my favorite books with links and descriptions and explanations for why I like them. And it'll also add you to my 3-Minute Monday newsletter. Also, learn how to skip college and get Praxis's free book on the success mindset at discoverpraxis.com slash modernwisdom. You get a 20% discount on everything from Lucy at uk.lucy.co or lucy.co in the US and use the code MW20 at checkout. And you can get a 10% discount on your first month of counseling from BetterHelp at betterhelp.com slash modernwisdom. I'll see you next time.